Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. This week on our show, during the pandemic, so many Californians have lost their jobs and struggled to pay rent. I don't know what to do after that without jobs, without income. People have been forced to make really difficult decisions, like choosing between buying groceries or paying the landlord. I don't have any money to pay the bills. I just have saving the money for the food. It's just really scary uh, right now. I have to have a roof over my head. You know, I, I just have to. And of course, my grandbabies and, you know, they need a roof over their head. And uh, the whole family does. Federal, state, and local governments did put some eviction protections in place during the pandemic. And Congress handed out nearly $50 billion to help people catch up on missed rent. If we don't act now, there'll be a wave of evictions and foreclosures in the coming months. But people still got evicted. The sheriff came out and I ended up having to move with my daughter. But most of those pandemic protections were temporary, and now things are getting worse. But evictions don't affect everyone equally. They're more likely to hit some communities harder than others. And that's the focus of a new season of the podcast Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. Today on our show, we're bringing you the first episode of that new season, from KQED housing reporters Aaron Baldessari and Molly Solomon. Molly's going to start us off. When most people think about the suburbs, they think about good schools and safe neighborhoods, single-family houses with manicured lawns and white picket fences. Tamisha Torres Walker wanted that for her family. She'd rented her whole life and was ready to buy a place where she could raise her two sons. When she looked around, she found that most parts of the San Francisco Bay Area were too expensive, but not Antioch. Antioch just showed up as like this place that was still affordable for people who wanted to become first-time homebuyers. Even though the place she found wasn't her dream house, it checked a lot of boxes. The house picked me. <laughs> it was like... It had everything a single mom with two sons could need. We needed three bedrooms, it had it. I wanted a fireplace, it had it. My sons wanted dogs, it had a huge backyard. In 2015, Tamisha bought her first home. But living in Antioch, she noticed a lot of other newcomers weren't buying homes. They were renting. They'd been priced out of bigger cities like San Francisco and Oakland. The rental crisis the unaffordability of, like, rents skyrocketing in the Bay Area. 
is what started to push everybody else out this way. Demisha isn't just a homeowner. She's a city council member, has been for the last year. So we asked her to show us around. Antioch is home to more than 115,000 people. It's a commuter town on the outer fringes of the Bay Area, about an hour's drive from San Francisco. Highway 4 divides it in two. We're like right up against Highway 4 right now. On one side of the highway, there are rows and rows of single-family homes, peppered with strip malls, big box stores, and a golf course. On the other side, there's Tamisha's district. It's a huge district, stretching about 15 miles along the San Joaquin River Delta. There's a quaint, historic downtown and a lot of industry. As we drive along the waterfront, she points out paper mills, chemical plants, and oil refineries. A lot of people call it refinery row. Her district is also where a lot of the apartment buildings and townhomes are, especially in this one neighborhood, the Sycamore Corridor. This is a Sycamore Square and a lot more apartments. On the neighborhood's busiest street, there's a small shopping center with a liquor store, a smoke shop, and a fried fish and chicken joint. So um, this, all of this is high-density housing. Like, everything on this side of the street is all high-density housing. We came here because we'd been gathering data on pandemic evictions in the Bay Area. And when we crunched the numbers, Antioch stood out. It was the city with the highest eviction rate, 22 times higher than in Oakland. Almost a year and a half into the pandemic, there had been 91 evictions in Antioch. In Oakland, a city four times bigger, there had been just 33. But it's important to note that our data only captures evictions enforced by the sheriff. And many people leave before that point, so we know even more people were evicted during that time. I thought that we were not supposed to be evicting people during a global pandemic. The highest concentration of evictions in Antioch was right here in the Sycamore Corridor, and we saw clear signs of that as we drove around. As we turned one corner, we saw two houses with big piles of stuff on the front lawn. That's probably somebody being put out. All of the stuff outside. That's probably somebody being put out. There was furniture, kids' toys, cardboard boxes with papers and letters spilling out of them. All of it wet. Today's six. So that means that if you got a three-day pay or quit on the first... It might be out now. You might be out now. Yeah, people might be starting to leave right now. A couple doors down, there was another empty house. The neighbors said the family had left months ago. An eviction notice was still taped to the front door. Talking to people in Tamisha's district, it seemed like everyone had an eviction story. They gave us a notice and... Um... We didn't really know what to do, so we just moved. I've been staying with my friends, mostly. Just staying with my friends and um, trying to get by. You know, it's, it's been so hard to get help. You have to really, like, know somebody that knows somebody. It's not easy to, after you have an eviction, it's not easy to find another place. It's not easy. This is not the vision of the suburbs we thought we knew. We've had this story that's been told to us that the suburbs is the place of, of white picket fences. And that has been true, but it's never been the entire story. That's Chris Schilt. She's the director of the Regional Suburban Organizing Project. And she says this idea that suburbs represent white middle-class success, that's not really the case anymore. Across the country, suburbs are home to the largest and fastest growing population of people living in poverty. 
That's according to research from the Brookings Institution. We can't deny there are more people of color living in the suburbs. There are more low-income people living in suburbs. There are more renters living in suburbs um, than ever before. So we need to look at and understand what's happening in suburban places like Antioch uh, in order to understand what's happening in, in this country. The evictions we're seeing in Antioch are tied to the nation's housing crisis. And the seeds of those evictions were planted 30 years ago. In the early 90s, Antioch was a destination. There was a building boom going on, and a lot of middle-class people of color were moving in. A lot of um, Latinx and African-American um, folks who had moved out to buy a home, maybe to buy their first home or to move into a bigger or a better home from where they were living before. Michael Carter grew up in East Oakland, a historically black neighborhood. He's an investment banker. And in the early 90s, he wanted a safer place to raise his two sons. Seeing how Oakland was beginning to change and the amount of crime that I was beginning to notice that was rising, I didn't want my boys growing up in that area. He saw opportunity in Antioch. He found a really nice four-bedroom home for less than $150,000. It was in one of the fancier parts of town, out by the golf course. That was going to happen in Oakland. Mm. No way. Michael and his family were part of this wave of Black families moving to Antioch. It was a big shift for the city. In 1980, Antioch was almost 90% white, and it had a history as a sundown town. There had actually been laws in place to prohibit people of color from walking the streets after dark. Even after those laws were repealed, some people of color told us they still didn't feel safe. But between 1990 and 2000, the number of Black residents more than quadrupled, the Latino population doubled. We were actually seeing a, a diverse um, demographic move into Antioch. Then the foreclosure crisis hit, and it hit families like Michael's especially hard. He ended up losing his home and becoming a renter. 2008 hit, and everything just got slammed. Foreclosures tore through low-income suburbs across the country. Again, here's Chris Schilt. It was specifically low-income suburban cities with large African-American, Latinx homeowners of color um, nationally that, that had the highest foreclosure rates. In Antioch, a quarter of all homeowners with mortgages lost their homes. That area was one of the hardest hit in the country for, for foreclosures. Chris says that a lot of those homes weren't bought by new homeowners, they were bought by investors. And you saw this dramatic shift. Over the past 20 years, the population in Antioch has continued to grow, but the number of homeowners has stayed relatively flat, even dropping slightly, while the number of renters grew by 60%. It was a complete flip. It went from being a homeowning community to a renter community in terms of, of who was moving in. A big part of that was surging rents in cities like San Francisco and Oakland, pushing renters further and further away in search of any place they could afford. I don't think Antioch's story is unique. That is part of a regional trend and part of a national trend of what's happening in the suburbs. You can see the effects of gentrification in suburbs around Chicago, Atlanta, Boston. Places that were once affordable have gotten more and more expensive. As more low-income renters move out to the suburbs, evictions there are going up. We talked to someone who studies this. Tim Thomas is the research director at the Urban Displacement Project at the University of California in Berkeley. 
And he says he noticed the same trend around Seattle. High prices there pushed people south of the city. There are a lot of black households in particular moving to South King County because that was the last affordable space to be. But now we see that's the space where most evictions are happening. Over half of the evictions in the whole county are happening in a very few neighborhoods where that displacement has happened. It's not a coincidence that evictions are hitting black neighborhoods the hardest because evictions and race are deeply connected. When Tim looked at our data on evictions in the Bay Area, he saw that black households were evicted at a higher rate than white households. It's the same pattern he saw in Seattle. In just one year of data, I found that black women were getting evicted seven times more than white women. Black households in general were getting evicted four times more than white households, which is a huge disparity. In a lot of ways, the suburbs haven't caught up to this new reality. They don't typically have the money or staffing for social services that big cities have. We really stopped investing in our suburbs um, in the 80s and, and 90s in community infrastructure, in nonprofits, in social services, in our schools. We've moved away from investing in our communities in general in the past 30, 40 years. And suburbs don't have the kinds of renter protections that big cities have to help people stay in their homes. It leaves renters with few options when things do go wrong, when that eviction notice gets taped to the front door. Hi, how are you? I'm Erin. Hola, ¿cómo estás? Bien, gracias. We met Carmen Ponce at her apartment in Antioch. It's a small place on the ground floor of a two-story building. And immediately when you walk in, you see these boxes, big plastic bins stacked on top of each other, ready in case she needs to leave. Si miras alrededor de mi apartamento, casi todo ya está en caja, todo vacío. Carmen lives with her teenage daughter and one-year-old granddaughter. She also has two adult sons who sometimes stay with her. Ever since they got an eviction notice, they've been living in this sort of limbo. The problems with her landlord started when the pandemic shut down businesses like hers. Carmen cuts hair at a barber shop in a town nearby. And because of COVID, she was out of work for almost a year. She fell behind on the $1,300 she pays in rent every month. It was a difficult time. So many people we talked to while reporting on evictions told us they were already struggling to pay rent. And then something else would happen something that made catching up nearly impossible. In Carmen's case, she was shot just outside her home in an incident that had nothing to do with her. She says she feels responsible for her daughter, who just turned 17, and her one-year-old granddaughter. It's given her the strength to keep going. Carmen spent a month in the hospital and another four months recovering at home. She started working again last July, but it wasn't full-time. Then, things got a lot worse. Her property manager dropped off a notice at her door. It said, pay the back rent or get out. She owed at least $15,000. Where would she go with her daughter and granddaughter? She thought their only option would be to stay in her car because she didn't have enough money to move somewhere else. At this point in the pandemic, Carmen was still covered by California's eviction moratorium. So rather than leaving right away, she waited. Legally, the landlord would need to file a formal eviction in court to actually force her out. But that lawsuit never came. 
no, pa, no para el acoso constante del, del, del manager, porque también me habla por teléfono, que, que cuando me voy a ir. Instead, Carmen says the property manager keeps harassing her, calling her again and again, asking her when she's going to leave. They even gave her a second eviction notice in January this year, but they still haven't filed a lawsuit. There was no harassment. It was just getting her attention. Bob Gunson is Carmen's property manager, and he says his office only called to get her signed up for the rent relief program. That's the only reason. Uh, yeah, we've got quite a few tenants that we've, we've got, got them signed into that program, and they weren't aware of it, and uh, it's helped them out a lot. Carmen did sign up for rent relief. She got a partial payout, but not for everything she owes, and doesn't know when the rest of the money will come. Work has been slow. And she still isn't making the same amount she was before the pandemic. She says she doesn't know what's going to happen from one day to the next. Da tristeza, da tristeza en la situación en la que, en lo personal en la que yo me encuentro y en la que mucha gente, nena, estamos viviendo. Porque yo sé que hay, todavía hay mucha gente que está pasando lo mismo que yo. It's depressing. And Carmen knows there's lots of people in Antioch going through the same thing. That's because Antioch is becoming less affordable. During the pandemic, rents here shot up 26%. Nearly two-thirds of all Antioch renters are cost-burdened, meaning they pay more than a third of their income on housing. As housing gets more expensive, it's harder to hold on to, especially for people living paycheck to paycheck. That leads to more turnover. People leave, they're priced out, or they're evicted. City Council member Tamisha Torres-Walker says that churn hurts the whole community. It creates anxiety, instability. It creates uncertainty. And, and that's unfortunate because neighborhoods can't thrive like that. It's one reason why Tamisha is helping to lead a growing movement of Antioch renters pushing for change, a movement that started in the Sycamore Corridor. For a long time after Tamisha Torres Walker moved to Antioch, it didn't really feel like home. She was actually thinking about leaving. And then I started to care about the conditions in the community and actually like being here and like made a bigger commitment to change where I lived. So in a sense, I made a commitment to stay. And she realized there wasn't anyone on Antioch City Council who she felt really represented the people living in her district. So she decided to run. I heard not one elected official talk about the conditions in the community, like the real issues and conditions in, in community here in this district. Tamisha spent countless hours knocking on doors, a lot of it in the Sycamore Corridor. She talked to people, asking them what kind of issues they were dealing with. You know, poverty, harm, violence, police misconduct and brutality, dilapidated conditions just the quality of life, the way people were living. And a lot of people were getting evicted. We were talking to people and they were telling us, oh, this person, that person next door don't live here no more. They moved out last week. Like literally, like they, they got kicked out. One man who would become instrumental in Tamisha's campaign was Francisco Torres. He's a tenant organizer for the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment. Most people just call it ACE. 
As more low-income renters move to suburbs like Antioch, Francisco's seen the fight for renters' rights follow close behind. Because it's much more expensive now. It's much more expensive. And, and there's less and less places to move into. When Francisco heard Tamisha was running for city council, he and other ACE members jumped in to support her campaign. And the reason I got involved, because I knew that if Tamisha won, we could change the city council. Maybe they would actually have a chance of passing policies to help renters. She did win, and that's when their work really began. Antioch doesn't have the history of tenant activism that you see in big cities like San Francisco or Los Angeles. And they knew Tamisha wouldn't be able to get any new policies passed unless renters spoke up. So Ace began recruiting. Hello. Hello. How are you? How are you? My name is Jaime. I'm with ACE Institute. They got people to write letters to their representatives, hold signs outside of City Hall, and show up on Zoom meetings. Hi, can everyone hear me? Yes. Okay. Good evening, Mayor, City Council members, staff, and residents of Antioch. My name is Jackie Lowry, and I'm a resident of Antioch, a renter, and a member of ACE. The Antioch City Council is now actively debating tenant protections, and renters are showing up. My family and I moved to Antioch for a better life. But from what I've been seeing in our city with our tax-paying, rent-paying citizens, shameful. You have a rental community in Antioch that needs your help right now. Families are struggling to pay their rents and live with the daily worry if the next rent increase will be what puts them out. Rents are constantly increasing. Many of us are just going back to work because of the pandemic. We simply can't afford the high rents and don't see a way forward. They're demanding three big things. A cap on yearly rent increases, a new lot to make it illegal for landlords to harass their tenants, and another that makes it harder for landlords to evict. It's the first time renters are pushing for these kinds of protections in Antioch, and it's by no means a sure thing. Lots of people don't want these policies to pass. Landlords and other property owners don't want more government regulation, not to mention a couple city council members who are pushing back. There's more meetings on the books before the council will cast their final votes. But no matter what happens with these proposals, Tamisha is hopeful. And people are organizing. There are people who are organizing themselves because they're starting to see that they need to create a voice um, from the ground. And And I think that that's the greatest change any community can see is people building community. Renters are taking a stand and fighting to stay in Antioch. I don't think that's happened here in Antioch, especially for people who have transitioned here. And I see it happening now, and I'm excited about it. Some people don't even realize that you could actually fight in a big group and win. For Francisco and members of ACE, there's no fight more important than the fight to stay housed. And it's important to protect that. Because what else do you have if you don't have a home? That's the question that really got us thinking about evictions in the first place. Because home is the center of our lives. It's where we can be ourselves. It shapes our identities and keeps our families safe. And if we suddenly had to leave, we'd feel lost, disconnected. But that's what happens when you're evicted. You lose your home and so much more.
Aaron Baldessari and Molly Solomon with the first episode of the new season of the podcast, Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. We're going to share an excerpt with you now from the next episode, which focuses on the people who are most likely to be on the receiving end of evictions, Black women. For the last year and a half, Molly has been following one woman and her son after they were evicted. Her story tells us a lot about the causes and consequences of eviction and how even when you think you've done it all right, you can still lose everything. Jean Kendrick used to own a home way up in the Oakland Hills. It was a three-bedroom ranch with a big yard that looked out towards San Francisco. They said it was the size of a little less than the size of a football field. When I first moved up there, my legs would get so tired just walking through the house. It was a nice neighborhood with lots of families. Jean liked how quiet and peaceful it was up there. It had a nice view so that when the sun went down, you can see the orange and I had this tree. You know how you see the picture with the black tree and then the orange background? That's the way it looked and I wish I would have took a picture. It was Jean's sister-in-law who bought it in the 80s. Yeah, she bought the house for $150,000. Now, that same house is worth over $1.6 million. Jean and her husband inherited the house from his sister, and they put a lot of love into the house, adding a walk-in tub and a dishwasher. Because I was putting things in there so that I would be comfortable when I retire. Jean and her husband lived there over a decade until he passed away. The trouble started when the house needed a new roof. It was going to cost $14,000. So in 2007, Jean took out a loan on the house to pay for it. I had one of those um, mortgages that was flexible instead of fixed. She says the mortgage company talked her into it. They told her, you can keep this rate for six months, then we'll get you into a fixed rate. It seemed fine at the time. She could manage the payments, about $1,000 a month. But then the payments went way up. And when it went up to $3,333 a month, I couldn't afford it anymore. In 2010, like so many homeowners, Jean lost her dream house to foreclosure. She filed for bankruptcy, sold the house in a quick sale, and moved into a rental. At the time, it's like shock to your system, and it, you're perceived as, it's only happening to me, and I'm a loser, I failed. But it wasn't just happening to Jean. This story is um, a real devastating illustration of a broader pattern. Jacob Faber is a sociologist at New York University who studies housing and racial inequality. He says the story of what happened to Jean during the Great Recession was happening to a lot of American families. And it hit Black families like Jean's especially hard. People of color, predominantly Blacks and Latinos, were targeted for these predatory mortgage loans. In the wake of the financial crisis, waves of foreclosures sank Black home ownership rates, which hit record lows. Faber analyzed millions of loan applications and found that Black households were more than twice as likely to get a riskier subprime loan than white applicants, even if they had higher incomes. And so that's why, for example, we see that um, Blacks and Latinos in 2006 um, who were making um, a quarter of a million dollars a year were more likely to get subprime loans than white borrowers making $35,000 a year. It wasn't just who was being targeted, but where. This subprime lending crisis hit the exact same neighborhoods that have long faced discrimination and still do today. 
excerpts from the podcast Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. You can hear more of this season if you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sold Out is reported and produced by Erin Baldessari and Molly Solomon with producer Aditi Bandlamudi. Kiana Mogadam is the senior producer. Erica Kelly is the show's editor with additional editing from Jessica Placek and Otis R. Taylor Jr. The California Report magazine and Sold Out are both productions of KQED in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Susie Racho is our producer-director, and our sound engineer is Brendan Willard. Amanda Font and Izzy Bloom are also part of our team. And I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks so much for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.